you're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today I'm talking to Alex Schroyer, a systems engineer and PhD candidate at Indiana University. We talk about his unusually extensive experiences with array languages like APL and J, where they came from, how they have more to offer than just extreme conciseness, and what feature creep looks like in a language that's mostly symbols. And now, thinking in array languages. All right, Alex, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So you had previously mentioned to me that APL and languages like it, so that's to say array languages that are, yes, they are extremely concise, like APL famously has lots of <laughs> single character, but it's like a weird symbol instead of function names. Uh, you were saying that it's more than just conciseness. Conciseness is just sort of like maybe the tip of the iceberg. Can you expand on that a little bit and just kind of tell me what else there is to them about than just the conciseness? Sure, yeah. So I'll try to do a good job of capturing the spirit of the array languages. I think that some other people have said this better than I probably can, but well, you know, there's the whole like Alan Perlis quote about languages that change the way you think, you know, those are the ones that are worth learning. Yeah. And the array languages has more than I think most other languages that I've played with have changed the way I think to a, a greater degree. Interesting. Okay. So what's what's the competition there? Like array languages compared to other languages? All right, yeah. So uh, some context for what that means. Back in probably around 2012, 2013, that's when I kind of discovered functional programming, mostly through Elm. And nice. I actually remembered your name from like the Elm mailing lists back then. <laughs> I did a, a project on it for a class. Well, I did a project using Elm for a class. And so I was sort of exposed to functional programming then and kind of like got the gist of immutability and using types as a program design type of tool. Before that, I'd done some C, some Java, some JavaScript, and a little bit of front end. Then at some point, I discovered J through a blog post. And J is one of these array programming languages. So is it, is it fair to say that, because this is my understanding of J, is that it's sort of like a dialect of APL, but instead of symbols, they use just really concise sort of like ASCII names for things? Yeah, that's a really good way to think of it. Okay. It's just coming from the outside. That's a really good way of like telling them apart. Okay. They were both kind of created by the same person primarily. Huh, didn't know that. Ken Iverson developed APL as a notation for writing math, not as a programming mm -hmm. language. But okay. back in the late 50s, he was really concerned with how mathematicians were trying to communicate their ideas to each other. But they had all this notation that just, it took them like forever and they filled up blackboards and they still couldn't get their point across. <laughs> so things like, have you ever seen the, the, the ceiling and floor symbols? In mathematics, like in LaTeX, oh, like uh, are kind of like these angles worth. Yeah, right, right. Of that came from Iverson being like frustrated with mathematicians at the time, all coming up with their own way of saying ceiling and floor. Huh. So he made a symbol for it. Yeah, and at first it was just this written notation for blackboards, and then at some point, some people decided to try to turn it into a computer language. Then there was a executable mathematical notation. <laughs> that's quite a tagline for a programming language executable mathematical notation yeah and i think that the the big thing about the array languages is that that emphasis on the notation has kind of persisted over the decades and okay. where other languages like uh for example scheme type languages so I, i've used racket those are a totally different mindset of how you approach programming with those that is like the lisp family or the yeah, array yeah. languages compared okay so in the Lisp family, which probably lots of people listening would 
have more familiarity with, even though Lisp sure. is kind of a little bit more of a niche language compared to like JavaScript. Sure. But in those languages, you tend to think about solving problems in terms of structuring your program as a similar shape to your problem or coming up with a DSL that, that describes how your problem should work and then making that be like the language that you use to solve the problem. Well, with like macros yeah, and things yeah, like macros that. Yeah, macros and, and coming up with transformations on your data. And a lot of that style, the feel of, of using a Lisp is like coming up with a new language that describes your problem. And so you come up with all these symbols, like there's in lists, there's hardly any syntax. It's mostly just parentheses and then words, right? So words are the, right. the building block. So in contrast with something like APL, the notation is much more sort of top of mind when you're programming in a, an array language. I guess it would have to be. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can, of course you can define new names for things just like in a, most programming languages, you can define a name for a function a name for a procedure or whatever. But there's kind of like this aesthetic that guides you towards using the symbols more than you normally would in, for example, a Lisp. I mean, it, I think it probably depends on the person, but for me, the reason is that I like the way the symbols look as a first <laughs> kind of approximation. And the more you get used to like thinking in terms of symbols, they stop looking so much like individual symbol characters. You start to experience some sort of word formation where the symbol followed by that one, followed by that one. Oh, that means a particular construct. That means something specific. So, okay. So maybe let me, let me see if I can say this to check my understanding. Is it the case that rather than like, if, I, if I'm working like a functional programming language, I think I'm usually thinking in terms of, okay, here's this function. It's being called with these arguments. And each of those are kind of distinct pieces. They're all sort of like their own little sub-expression. It sounds like what you're saying is that in an array language, I might think of that entire chunk of like four tokens, let's say, instead of thinking of it as like, oh, that's a function call with three different arguments. I'm thinking of that whole four token chunk as like one unit. That's like, this is just like that thing. And it's a, it's a common pattern I've seen before. So that, that's got like its own mental model. Even if I did create it by composing together four different pieces, kind of like I did in the function call. Yeah. So I think maybe a, a good analogy would be something like in a procedural language, like C, for example, you often encounter things like doubly nested for loops, right? For sure. maybe traversing a two-dimensional array or like an array of structs or something like that. So the double nesting is a pattern and a C programmer learns how to recognize that pattern. They're like, oh, yeah. I see for loop indentation, another for loop. I know this is going to be like some sort of order n squared kind of complexity or like n times n complexity. For a, an array programmer, it's sort of more like replace a for loop with a single character that means the same thing. And then if you see two of them in a row, you recognize the pattern, right? Sure. So, so far, basically it sounds the same, right? Agreed. Now the difference comes in all the details that you can add as a C programmer to that for loop. So you're allowed to, the first for loop might be, you know, incrementing I by one. And the second for loop might be incrementing J by three or doing something weird like that, right? There can be a break and, you know, early returns and continue statements inside. So having a control structure like a for loop is for a C programmer, that's, that's too limiting. You need all these extra little escape hatches to do something. <laughs> it's flexible. Yeah. Yeah. And for the most part, a lot of the control structures in array languages are less flexible, 
But what you gain from that is this feeling like, if I look at that symbol that means this control structure, I know exactly what it does. There's never any thought going into, oh, but what happens on the 15th inner loop of this thing? Oh, interesting. Okay. So this is maybe less like a function than I've been thinking and more like a language level keyword, maybe like a for loop, but unlike a for loop, it's trying to think of it like maybe more like if and else in the sense that it just always does exactly the same thing and there aren't any knobs to twiddle. Yeah. I think that's maybe a good way to think about it from like a, a feel kind of perspective. What does it feel like programming these languages? Because certainly I don't think of if and else as functions. I mean, they're they're definitely their own thing and there's definitely no knobs to twiddle. Interesting. Okay. So what are some examples of things like that? I mean, I can imagine if and else and I can imagine function calls. What's an example of one that you'd find in an array language that you wouldn't find in like a C or a JavaScript or Elm or Clojure? Sure, yeah. So there's one that comes to mind, especially because we're talking about control flow at the moment, like control structures, is the thing called this, it's called power and it's, kind of spelled like in the same sense as like two to the power three. Okay. So the idea of the exponential being a power function is you take some data and you apply an operand to it and you get a result and then you apply the same operand to the original data and you get another result and you do this a repeated number of times, right? So two to the power three is two with the times operator repeated three times. Got it. So it's like of course, my brain immediately goes to like, how would I try to express this in a functional language? Sure. And it sounds like you give it a, it's like a function that takes, it's a, sorry, it's a higher order function. You give it, well, but it's not quite that because you give it, it's maybe like a macro kind of because you give it any expression, right? And then- You could probably express it in terms of a fold in a functional language. Hmm. Okay. Like where, where so- Fold with the initial element two and the, the power being the function to apply- and then yeah. each pair of data items has the multiply applied to the pair. And the result is then the next element in the sequence that gets multiplied again, right? Got it. But power has some sort of built-in notion of like the the starting point, I guess. Because in like a fold, you always need to have some starting state. And then each step in the fold takes that state and the next element or whatever, and then returns a new state. Right. But it sounds like power is already takes care of somehow the initial state and, and just does the whole apply the, the thing over and over to it. Right. So um, I'm going to try to like give an example that that kind of clarifies this. Yeah. So your, your question about the initial state, that's totally makes sense for a, a functional programmer because full yes. takes a parameter, right? You have to know right. what the initial value is, right? And in most of the array languages that I know of, well, first of all, they're mostly all interpreted, not compiled. Uh-huh. And the different types that are available in languages are usually pretty restricted to a, just a few different types. So like character type, maybe just one numeric type, and then arrays of those things. There's more, but that's pretty much a good approximation. Okay. So you gave the, let's see if I can make up an example, not knowing any of these languages. <laughs> so you gave like the example of let's say I want to do, what was it, three to the power of six or something like that? And I would say three and then times and then power being repeat the times six times. Right. So another example of that might be, let's say I'm doing a string and I want to maybe concatenate something like an exclamation point on the end of the string. Sure. So I could say, here's my string 
concatenate exclamation point and then like power three and that would add three exclamation points to the end maybe yeah and i think the thing to think of here is you take your original string which is like high world and the thing you want to concatenate onto it is the exclamation mark and you do this once and you get high world single exclamation mark yeah you do this the second time you get you're starting with now high world exclamation mark and you do the thing again and you get two exclamation marks at the end right so the idea is you're just taking the result of that thing and plugging it back in as the new input, just like you would in a, I mean, you think of it differently when you're thinking of a fold, usually. You're probably thinking of like, I already have the list of things and I want to traverse over that list. Right. It's definitely not quite the same thing. Yeah. It's slightly different. This reminds me of the first time I ever heard about Lisp. I was in a classroom in college and the professor, in, in my opinion, in, in retrospect, this was not a good way to introduce Lisp to at least to a sophomore and <laughs> undergrad, but, but he was talking about, this is, I think scheme. And he was talking about car and cutter. So CNR and CDR. And so car, if I remember right, is like head. It's like, give me the first element of the list. And then cutter was like, give me the rest of the, the list other than the head. And so it's a way to pick up lists into two parts. And now having a lot more experience with functional programming, I understand that's useful when you're doing recursion. It's a way to just step through the whole thing one at a time. It's actually pretty elegant. But for some reason, what he focused on in the class was, well, so you can also do car, <laughs> which is like, like it's, if you had two A's in there, I think it was A's and not oh, R's, man. but now it takes the first two things and you can say cadder, which is like C-A-D-R. And it's like, take the car of the cutter. So like take the rest of the thing and then get the first one off of that. And then you can have like cadder and cadder. You know, it's hilarious because I actually used C-D-D-D-R the other day in an... In an Emacs thing. <laughs> yeah. And, and look, I'm, I'm not saying it's not useful, but I remember just sitting there being like, why would anyone want this? This oh, is yeah. just such a bizarre, like, and it, it reminds me of like, you know, I can imagine as a first impression, I'm like, okay, so power sounds like it's, it's not something that, wh- why would I want that if I've already got fold? But at the same time, I also, I have to have the humility to remember back when I was starting out of functional programming and there was a lot of stuff where I was like, well, that seems kind of silly. And then you get far enough into it and it turns out like, oh no, actually I see that's actually quite useful in in a bunch of different contexts that I didn't think of as a beginner. Right. Yeah. That's a good example of like a different approach to programming for lists versus other things. Like there's car and there's cadaters and things like that, which are (laughs) just completely bizarre names. But there is something about the names that evokes what's happening. Cause once you understand car and cutter and you, get the trick that they're playing here on you, which is, oh, just more of that, but it's part of the name. Right. Well then, yeah, that's that's certainly more convenient than writing cutter, 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 right? It's certainly, well, it's more concise. And I, I guess you could say more convenient also, yeah. Although I think there is a bit of a trade-off here. And I think this gets into the sort of the, something that you were hinting at earlier, which is when you're used to having sort of a vocabulary of these really common operations and they're kind of top of mind in your head, I think that's a pretty different experience from if you're using things that are quite concise, but not really top of mind because they don't come up that often. So if I'm reading like CDDR or something like that, what I do, I mean, honestly, is I'm going to stop and physically rewrite that into, okay, wait, that must be, I'm going to desugar it like by hand and then be like, okay, now I actually understand what it's doing because the sort of macro expanded version, I can actually understand because I'm not, I'm not using CDDR all the time. Right. It's, it's something that, you know, comes up so rarely. 
And I think that's a, there's a bit of a, a trade-off there. But it seems like in array languages, you are using these symbols, these really concise things all the time, or at least often enough that you don't need to do that. There's no need for like a macro expansion. You can just be like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm just, you know, I got these really quick right. top of mind. I think that's that's like, that does explain the feel to me a little bit. Instead of, you know, the 3D cutter thing, an array language would just say something like cutter to the power three. Sure. Right, yeah, there you go. <laughs> for a name like because you've got power, you just use that, right? Right. So it's not just the conciseness, it's the having a well-selected sort of vocabulary of concise things that are useful enough and in enough contexts that even though they don't have a lot of knobs to twiddle like a for loop does, for example, you end up using them so often that when you just see them, you just immediately know, oh, I, I know exactly what this is doing. Yeah, that's that's something I thought about too, um, is, you know, that Unix philosophy of do one thing well. Sure. Right. Everybody knows that. Sounds great. It's like, yes, let's I approve of this. Let's do that. But in the reality, it's like, well, you've got, you know, said with like 15 different options. It's kind of like a language itself. And you pipe that into awk, which is a fully complete Turing complete language. And and then there's grep, which of course, you know, is regex. And then there's things like tar, which no one can ever remember the the arguments to tar. Yeah. It's even like, it's a meme at this point, right? So it gets kind of like, it's not quite living up to that simple promise of everything is a single thing that does one thing well. But there is something that, that Unix does really well, which is like the, just treating everything as a text file and having this pipeline of operations where text goes in and text comes out. And the thing that makes it, I think, like useful and effective is you are not thinking too much about the details of like the formatting of things. You already know that it's text. It's all just common understood that things going in are text, things coming out are text. All of my tools work on text. And that's the part that I think is maybe less appreciated. Well, I don't know if it's less appreciated. Probably lots of people appreciate it. But <laughs> you say do one thing well, and then you're like, oh, but it doesn't quite live up to that. Well, it is living up to it in the sense that there's this common interface and everything is designed to work with that interface. And those, those different things, they do work well together, even if they're not quite single purpose tools by this point. Yeah. I remember this amusing article by Dan Liu that kind of investigated the claim of, you know, Unix being about do one thing and do it well in practice. And yeah, he, he brought up some of those examples of like, you know, actually look, look how many arguments there are to the LS command, oh, okay. for example, <laughs> which, you know, you would think would be one of the simplest ones. It's like, yeah, clearly it's not enough in practice to just compose these things together like that. But it sounds like APL must be doing a better job at that than Unix is in practice because these symbols are actually quite limited in what they can do. They, they don't have a bunch of extra flags, so to speak, that you can <laughs> add to them. Well, you know, the array languages are not immune to the feature creep either. But in general, <laughs> they, they start from a place where it's much harder to put extra features in. So yeah. you know, an operator that's like a, a circle with a diagonal slash through it, and you can put that operator either to one side of your data or in between two pieces of data. And that's that's your... That's what feature creep looks like. <laughs> well, there is feature creep in, in a sense, but you don't notice it at first. It's okay. harder to see on the surface because like a symbol can... When you first come to the language, you're like, okay, symbols can be either... They come before the data, so the data is all on the right of it, or they go in between the data. So it's infix or prefix, basically. Okay. And each symbol usually gets those two 
overloads. Now, since these are dynamic and interpreted languages, you can also overload on type. So you might have a symbol that does one thing when its data is a string and a different thing when its data is numbers. Sure. But it's the same symbol. So it's a little bit of like, now you just have to learn this. But the thing that I think stands out with array languages is that those symbols, the two different meanings or the, you know, however many different meanings they have, often they make a lot of sense. Well, like, I mean, I just kind of guessed what power was going to do with a string right. and it sounds like I was correct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, do the thing and take your result and give it back as the argument the next time you do the thing. Yeah. Although I guess in that case, maybe, it, maybe there's no type directed dispatch on that. It's just, it just is doing exactly the, <laughs> whatever the operation was. And then the exclamation point example, I mean, okay. So feature creep then looks like making the same symbol able to sort of just work in more scenarios or, or just do something interesting rather than, I guess, giving an error or saying this is unsupported or something like that? Well, I think in the languages that I've used the most, which is primarily I'm most familiar with J and K, which are the ASCII versions, the ones that don't have special Unicode symbols, but you can write them with a standard QWERTY keyboard without having to use any special software. Or, or a special keyboard, right? Isn't there an APL keyboard that's like a physical designed for all these APL symbols? There was back in the day. There was actually a physical keyboard, or not a keyboard, but a, a typewriter back in the olden, olden times when teletype oh, wow. were the, the way that you interacted with computers. So they actually had, they were called type balls. So it had a ball and it rotated to have the, the right printed character. So back in that, in that time, they actually did have special keyboards. Modern APL programmers and, and BQN programmers, they use standard QWERTY, regular off-the-shelf stuff, like your text editor supports entering the different characters. Or there's like online IDEs and REPLs that let you click a button to get the character or type a two-character combo that results in the, the special character showing up. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I, I can see how if I were writing in something like that and I got fast at it, that could be really convenient. It, it kind of reminds me of something that I looked into long enough to say, this is cool, but I'm never going to actually do this in real life is stenography keyboards where you have oh, yeah. these, like you press multiple keys. Yeah, exactly. At the same time. And then, you know, the words come out a lot faster. And I remember thinking if I got really fast at this and good at it, I could see myself being able to jam out code a lot faster, but the amount of time that I would have to put into that. And then you have to buy this custom keyboard that's expensive and isn't necessarily good for other things that you use your keyboard for. I just didn't seem worth the investment, but I can imagine similarly, if I were writing a ton of APL, maybe it would make sense to, you know, that doesn't sound like it would be as much work to go to a, a special editor like that or something like that, like to, as far as the learning curve goes. And yeah, maybe I would end up with these ultra concise symbols and it would make me more productive. You know, the thing that you made me think of while you were saying that, because yeah, I, I've kind of like geeked out on keyboards too, right? <laughs> sure. The thing that made me think of was if you wanted to be really productive and you had no computer at all, I think an APL type language with the symbols, if you had a pen and paper, you would probably be more productive in that language than like Lisp, Haskell, whatever. Wow. Think about how much I could writing, yeah. like right. erasing, right? <laughs> Yeah. If you had to erase, like, you know, you decided that you wanted to do, uh, instead of quick sort, you wanted to do radix sort. How much erasing would that take if you were writing in Haskell? Yeah. 
I remember in a previous episode, we were talking about somebody wrote a compiler, I think it was an APL, where it was so concise that the entire compiler fit on some small number of printed out sheets of paper. And so if you wanted to like search through the program or, you know, refactor it or you could just very easily fit the whole thing in your head or, or at least like very large chunks of it at a time. And yeah, I never thought about that. But if you, for some reason, had the constraint that you were programming computers without a computer, which, you know, I mean, weirder things have happened. I've definitely found myself in scenarios where I was trying to solve a programming problem and I definitely did not have access to at least a full computer. I had my phone. And yeah, like when you're writing code on a phone, like with one hand, especially, which was the case in this particular scenario. And it was, I had several hours where I only had access to my phone and I could only use one hand on it. Unusual series of constraints, but it (laughs) happened several nights in a row. And I was actually writing code at one point. And it was basically a matter of how concisely could I express myself became a really big deal. Yeah. And if I could have expressed myself in array language, I actually bet that would have significantly saved me time and allowed me to get further with that. So if, you, if you've got a, like a baby on one hip and you're trying to get the baby to not cry, right? How did you guess the exact scenario? What else? <laughs> <laughs> what else? Yeah, I was like, right. I, I know. So yeah, so this is when my son was like a couple months old and no, not, no, not even, like, it might have even been first month. And like, he just was not sleeping through the night unless he was on one of us. So, you know, we would just take turns like, holding him all night and just yeah like at some point I'm like he's asleep on me <laughs> he doesn't care if I use the phone but like I, I can't get up I can't move but I've only got one hand to work with because the other hand's got to hold him and I also can't fall asleep because that's dangerous so here I am just sitting in the rocking chair what do I do and eventually I was like oh, I'd like to write some code but all I have is one hand and a phone <laughs> so this could be like a new tagline for array languages it's like family friendly <laughs> Well, specifically newborn, right? Like that, it only came up in this one particular window of time. I have to imagine though, when when Iverson sat down to say, I am going to design a language that's going to be good for writing math on a blackboard, he was probably not anticipating, you know what else it'll be good for someday is writing computer programs on one hand on your smartphone while holding an infant in the other <laughs> hand. I bet, I bet that was not on his mind. Well, you know, I mean, it seems kind of funny, right? To talk about it now, but you probably do like communicate with your coworkers using a whiteboard, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe you're like, you know, totally remote and, and you do everything with like, you could paste a huge chunk of code into their, their Slack or something. But if you're in person, often you're like drawing things and you're not going to draw that whole algorithm unless it's really easy to draw the whole algorithm, right? Yeah. Like you wouldn't write out the entire, like a, a static site generator on the whiteboard. It right. was like 15 characters, and then you might. Well, similarly, at least right now, I understand this is probably not going to be relevant for that much longer. Um, but in this particular moment, as of the date right now, uh, in, in May 2023, token limits on AIs are kind of a big deal for, for large language models. Right. And if you, again, have, have a much smaller, like literally a smaller number of tokens, then you can give it more context with which to give you suggestions and things like that. Yeah, and I think maybe it'd be a good good to draw a distinction between things that are just short versus things that are short and also kind of work well together. Cuz you can have like golfing oriented code golf oriented programming languages. Right? <laughs> sure. So like there's, you know, CDAM and Jelly, you know, these things where there's a single unicode character that means like 
reverse a string and take the first item that's, you know, the, take the first vowel of a string or something like that. I don't know. I'm making stuff. <laughs> I don't really know how they work, but I know that they have like single character does arbitrary function basically. Yeah. So there's that type of short, which is, you know, kind of like, well, just take everything you might possibly want from Python and condense it to a single unit, each concept to a single Unicode character. So, you know, 99 bottles of beer in the wall, that's one Unicode character. And, right. you know, Fizzbuzz, that's a second different Unicode character. So these are really uh, approaching as close as possible the ideal of it's a write once, read, never language. Right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you don't think in that language. You go look it up, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Whatever that character is and you find it and then you, you know, eventually maybe you you can memorize some of it, but it doesn't like fit together. You know what I wonder though is I wonder if actually trying to genuinely use a language like that in anger for a little bit. And I mean, you wouldn't want to do this to yourself for a long period of time, obviously, but just long enough to get a sort of taste for it and kind of try to get a little bit productive. I bet two things would happen. One is overall, it would be a pretty bad experience. And so one of the things I would think would happen is that when you're using another more reasonable language, whenever you get the same kind of a feeling that you remember from that, you would probably have a keener sense of like, this is not good. And I know why this is not good. Like it, it would be like, oh, this feels like I'm having to look up stuff all the time. Like I used to have to do for literally every single thing. These things should be broken down into more easily composable parts that I can just look at and immediately know what they are because they're in my short-term memory, or they need more self-descriptive names so that I can correctly guess what they do on the first try without having to look them up, things like that. And then the second thing I would imagine would happen is that I bet you would get some sort of insight where you're like, actually, there is something nice buried in there. It's not, it's not something I would have guessed, but it like weirdly when I do have one Unicode character for 99 bottles of beer on the wall, there is a surprising scenario where that, I mean, with that particular one, I guess you can guess the exact scenario where that comes up, <laughs> but you know, there's, there's probably some combination of weird things where you're like, you know, I wouldn't have guessed this. It, it always seems like whenever you take some really weird bucket of constraints that you would not think would uh, ever produce anything useful or nice, there's usually some weird combination of things where like, you know, actually there was something nice about that, even if overall it wasn't a great experience. Yeah, I could see that. I also have never been on a deadline and trying to code jelly code <laughs> professionally. Right? right. Have you ever been on a deadline and coding like APL or J or something like that? and or, or just use them in anger, I guess, to sort of like have to ship something to production, so to speak? I have used array languages for work, but... I wasn't quite so constrained as like a typical scenario because it was like a situation where I needed some results. The array language is something I already knew and, and I could get the result quickly. Nobody else in my team had to know what I was doing. <laughs> like uh -huh, they just cared uh -huh. about the result. They didn't have to read or understand the language either. Did anyone try to? Yeah. <laughs> I've got a couple people at work who will at least, you know, ponder and, and look at some of these things. Is that just so they can put it on their resume? Be like, oh yeah, I, I at this job I use Java, you know, <laughs> TypeScript and APL. Well, the problem is with most of these array languages, you put it on your resume and the recruiter has no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> True. Yeah. But that's you know, fair. For a specific <laughs> job, then yeah, that would definitely be a plus. Like, you know, there's some some places that are hiring for array languages, and if you already know an array language, they're like, oh sweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's got to be an uncommon one. 
you have to wonder how many times somebody was in that same position, except it turned out that it did matter if other people on the team knew it or like they, you know, years later after the person that left the company were like, hang on, we already have some code written that does exactly the thing we need. We just need to modify it a little bit. Where, where was that code again? They open it up and like, oh no, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> okay. So Pearl has a reputation like that, right? You come back. <laughs> 15 years later, this service has been running for 12 years, somebody who left 12 years ago. And it's this, you know, this incomprehensible Perl script. It's super dense. Every character is used in three different ways and kind of that sort of thing. It gets a You know what I will say? Right? I did a little bit of Perl earlier on in my career. And something I do remember liking about Perl that has to do with symbols. And I know Perl symbols overall get a pretty bad rep, but I definitely remember liking that you could sort of tell at a glance with a single sigil, like dollar sign. It was dollar sign, percent sign, and I actually forget what the third one was. Yeah, right. They told you like dollar sign, if I remember right, meant scalar and at sign meant array. And so I could tell just based on the variable name, a little bit of type information. And granted, you know, you have conventions around that. Like in most languages, you'll have singular versus plural if something's an array or not. But sometimes the plural one, you know, might not be an array. Maybe it's a dictionary. And guess what? In Perl, there was a, a separate, you know, was, that was the percent sign was like, this is a, a hash. No, Ruby calls them hashes. I don't remember. It's, it's been a long time. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember that was something that I missed about Perl from other languages was looking at that and thinking, just knowing at a glance, okay, this is a scalar. This is an array. This is a hash or, or whatever they called it. That was nice. And now that I'm making a programming language, it's not, I mean, I guess I have a revealed preference because I didn't put that in rock. So I didn't, I didn't like it enough to carry it forward, but I do remember that there are pros and cons to having those sigils, but definitely a pro that I remember was being able to tell very quickly, just instantly, is this one of those three things? Yeah. You can orient yourself a little bit more quickly to some unfamiliar piece of the code, like either your code yeah. months ago or somebody else's code. You'd be like, oh, well, that's an array function. And because they're used so often, I mean, if you're if you are writing Perl all the time, you learn that one pretty quickly. It's not like, you know, I can understand if you're coming into a Perl code base cold and you're unfamiliar with Perl, you'd be like, what are all these symbols? This is bizarre. But if you're used to it, which, you know, I remember getting used to it very quickly, I didn't think that it was something that got in my way. It was like, oh, I actually appreciate that this is just one character because it's just nicer to read, you know, at user or at users rather than, you know, users list. It's like a little bit more concise. But yeah, I definitely overall don't think that that was a feature that I liked enough to include in rock. But at the same time, again, I I can appreciate it. And so I can see similarly how someone might, you know, even if they don't choose to use array languages all the time or choose to name their functions with like two letter names all the time for that conciseness, realize and appreciate that in a different context, in the specific context of a language that they they do work together to be pretty nice. Yeah. And I think that was sort of the point I was trying to think of making with the Unix analogy. It was like, well, if everything's a string or if everything's lines of text, that clarifies your your way of thinking and approaching a problem. And so in an array language, pretty much everything is an array. And that is a, obviously it's a constraint, right? Yeah. But at the same time, it's sort of freeing because then you don't have to think about what else it could be. Yeah. So is that, is it, I, I didn't realize they sort of went that hardcore on it. Is it really the case that everything's an array in the sense that like in Ruby, everything's an object? Or I kind of assumed there are other data structures, but I guess a lot of data structures just <laughs> fancy wrappers around arrays <laughs> in some sense. So this will vary depending on which array language you're looking at. But as an approximation, you could start by saying, yeah, everything's an array in the sense that like, all the data values that you're probably going to be interacting with are, for the most part, in most of these languages, just arrays. 
Uh -huh. So let's let's look at like some of the the differences between those array languages. Like, so APL is like the first one, right? It was sort of, I guess, 1958 ish. I think it was like a year after McCarthy talked about Lisp for the first time. Okay. So it's not the first, but it's it's pretty old. Yeah. Fortran's older also. But um, back in that time, people were concerned with numeric computation, right? So character data is slightly an afterthought and anything else is basically like, well, who needs that? So uh, <laughs> the typing discipline is sort of, it's not quite like assembly, which is there's just no type information at all, but it's also doesn't go quite as far as C in saying you can define your own types. These are records or structs that have different pieces in them and they only work a certain way. So in, in an APL type of scenario, you're basically like, well, I have a bunch of numbers. I want to do some number crunching. And maybe you have things like records that you want to process like, oh, I don't know, a CSV file or something where you've got a header, which is strings and a bunch of columns of data, which are each column is the same type, whatever that type is. And so you kind of think about solving problems in an APL type language as, well, what can I do with arrays? Well, if I've got CSV data, I want to get all of my columns and treat them all as the same type. And if I've got something like JSON, which is more typically like, I guess I would call it like arrays of structs or something where you've got a sequence of things and each of those things has a bunch of different types in it. Well, an APL programmer would be slightly annoyed by that and be like, well, I want to first convert this into more of a tabular kind of structure so that I can operate on it one big array at a time. I see. So if I got, for example, a JSON array of JSON objects, and each of those objects was like first name, string, last name, string, email, string. Right. Maybe I would want to parse that into APL as three arrays. One's all the first names, one of them's all the last names, one of them's all the emails. Yeah, definitely. And you've probably heard about this in like the array of structs versus structive arrays kind of transformation. Yep. So like in game development, you often want to do the same thing over a big array and not do the same operation kind of batch all of your like uh, enemy proximity operations together and then batch all of your item. Right. So this is a, it's a performance optimization right. in that case. And well, yeah. that's a performance optimization with our modern computers because they have big caches. And right. if you do the same thing over and over again, well, then your instructions are all in cache and it makes that, you know, modern processor go faster. GPUs are kind of the same sort of shape. They like to do SIMD type things. So if you could structure your data in a SIMD kind of way, then it'll run fast on modern hardware. But it's more like an array programmer will, will be inclined to do that kind of approach because the language encourages you to. Because each of these like primitive operations like plus or times, by default, it has kind of like implicit mapping over the entire size of the data. You mentioned... Um... Like GPUs, do you know about like I'm um, I'm thinking immediately of the Futhark programming language. Oh yeah, which I believe is an array language, but it itself describes as a statically typed data parallel and purely functional array language in the ML family, which is a lot of adjectives. Oh yeah, <laughs> but I can't remember exactly how to pronounce his last name, but I think it's Trolls Henriksen is the creator of that language. And he went on as a guest to the podcast called The ArrayCast, which is all about array languages. So if you want to learn more, that's a great podcast to listen to. Nice. But he said that, you know, by virtue of being a guest on that podcast, therefore, Futhark is an array language. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it has a very different approach from 
what I consider like the spawn of Iverson kind of languages, like APL, J, K, BQN. I kind of lump those all together because they're very notation interactive kind of style. And Futhark, I believe, is like ahead of time compiled and it's much more looks like Haskell than APL. So it's maybe technically an array language in the way that it encourages you to think, but doesn't feel like one. I guess maybe an analogy would be, imagine if you had a Lisp that wasn't all about S expressions, but in other ways was like a Lisp. It's like, well, is it, is it, is it doesn't feel like a Lisp, but okay. <laughs> yeah, I think, well, I think really it just shows that there's different, there's more room in that family tree than than I initially think of. Like in my head, array languages look a certain way, but yeah, Futhark certainly is an array language. It just has a different set of goals, right? It's it's supposed to be good for programming on the GPU, which if you've done some CUDA code, you're like, well, please, anything to help me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because it's kind of a pain to, to try and do C style programming on a GPU. It's just like, it's not a good fit, right? Yeah. And it sounds like based on what you described that the sort of the way that array languages encourage you to think and encourage you to structure your code and your data, that just is sort of a natural fit for what the GPU is good at and wants you to do. Right. Uh, and I think, well, that's it's kind of like, obviously, it's a difficult task to make a language that can just run on the GPU. I mean, Futhark is, I don't know uh, what you would call it, maybe like research grade or maybe professional grade, but I'm not sure. It's okay. a niche kind of language, right? Because doing things like doing general purpose programming on a GPU is a little bit awkward because lots of programming programs that you would want to run need to do kind of not very good for GPU type things, like a deeply nested conditional statement for when the user clicks right over here and after a certain amount of other events have happened. That doesn't map very cleanly to like bulk operation, right? Right. That's a very right. like branch, branch, branch. Now I've got the special thing to do. There's so many like modern programs that don't fit in that mold that the ones that, that do can use special purpose tools. Like Futhark seems like if you have big number crunching type of data, lots of traversals of data structures, you want to do it in a certain way. Maybe Futhark can help you get it to run on the GPU where it would otherwise be difficult. Yeah. And it seems like although GPUs are certainly the case where this is the most true in the sense of needing to have your program structured in a certain way in order to get the most out of it, needing to have your data organized in memory a certain way. There are increasingly elements of that sort of bleeding into the CPU world because of SIMD, yep. where you have, there's the old meme of like, give it a sufficiently smart compiler, <laughs> dot, 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 you know, all sorts of magic is possible. And that, that joke I think often applies to auto vectorization where it's like, well, given the sufficiently smart compiler, your compiler can just transform your code into automatically using SIMD where possible. It's like in practice, how often does that happen? Well, you know, almost never, but you know, memcopy, that's a thing that uses SIMD uh, and like, yeah, if you're lucky, so yeah, if you're right, if you're lucky, <laughs> if your library author took the time to implement a SIMD memcopy for your platform that you're using. <laughs> yeah. And so because of these sort of common, uh, like, ways to optimize a program that don't seem to map cleanly to the way that we've come to program in the last several decades. I wonder if that will translate into either array languages themselves or something that encourages you to think in an array language like way becoming more mainstream in the coming years, just because it's something that you start giving up more and more performance, like leaving more and more performance on the table from your CPU 
if you're not organizing your code this way. And obviously there's some domains where that doesn't matter, but there's also some domains where, yeah, people spend a lot of time trying to get as much performance as they can out of them. And at some point there's some threshold that gets crossed where your default starts to matter. Are you default thinking in terms of imperative or functional or array? And those might be mutually exclusive. Yeah. So back in like 2010s, 2013s, I was like, ooh, functional programming, that's going to be big. (laughs) And then at some point I was like, array programming, that's going to be big. And both might still be true. It's just a question of time scales, right? Well, really, you know, programming in general has just gotten bigger. (laughs) So, but I mean, if you went back to 1950 and you saw Lisp with its garbage collection, you might've been like, wow, garbage collection, that's going to be big. And you'd be right. Just it took 40 years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I think it's getting to the point where people are realizing that, you know, you can't be competitive anymore unless you're also taking into account performance. At least it's in certain aspects of your programming. Right. Yeah. In some domains. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, obviously there are some where the person who's paying the cost isn't also paying your paycheck. Right. Yeah. Or or also just like the, you know, the end user has a certain tolerance and, you know, they, it's just not what they care about or they, they care about other things so much more that performance is kind of a nice to have, which, you know, makes me sad as someone who appreciates fast programs, but I understand (laughs) where it comes from. Well, you see this showing up in data science, like NumPy is massively popular among the data science crowd. And I think a big reason for that is the performance. Sure. Because this is enabling you to do applications that you couldn't do with pure Python. It would be unbearably slow. You just wouldn't write the application. Right. It would just take like days to run or something like right. that. Yeah. Or, you know, well, it's still working. We don't know how long it's going to take because we're our benchmark is still not done. Right? Yeah. yeah. At some point, you just throw up your hands and say, did not finish. But, yeah. So yeah, I think the array languages are kind of well-suited to take advantage of that you know, mechanical sympathy with the hardware. I think uh, Aaron Sue's co-defense compiler is probably one of the only ones I know of that is like an array language like APL, that flavor, that actually targets GPUs. But certainly, I think most of the interpreted array languages that I know of, like APL, BQN, K, J, they all have SIMD code in their interpreters. And yeah. Because these these like operations are so constrained to what they can do, that means you are allowed to, in the interpreter, run the fast path, right? You don't have to be like, right. oh, but what if it's a other type? Well, there's only like four types to choose from. So you just write all of those things. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have like a conditional dispatch that prevents you from having SIMD. You just write the SIMD version. And then, you know, if your array is too short, you just don't do it that way. <laughs> nice. Wow. Okay. I, this is great. I, I learned a lot. I came into this conversation knowing very little about array languages beyond the syntax. And yeah, that turned out to be a lot of depth to this thing. So thanks for uh, helping me understand this better. Oh yeah. I appreciate the chance to just ramble on about array stuff because I like it. It's really influenced me a lot. Nice. All right. Thanks so much. Have a good one. <laughs>